Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back. Episode three of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Dan, I got a pretty good name for this one. But why don't you introduce yourself first, and then I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm excited. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker and investor. Been in trading in the Greater Toronto area for about ten years. Like talking about macro, become a bit of a commentator on how the economy impacts the real estate market, and some people seem to like it. Typically, I try and present a balanced market view, but a lot of people tend to refer to me as a real estate bear. However, I do close on real estate investments pretty regularly for somebody who would have a bearish market thesis. So I like to think that I am a balanced market commentator in the real estate industry in Canada. A balanced bear, I guess some would say. Yeah, like the ones at the circus, right? Balancing on, what do they do? Like they got them on, uh, I might be bearish leaning a little bit, but yeah, I think I'm riding that unicycle or whatever the bears are doing, uh, balancing, right? Okay, what's this called? So I'm pretty sure a good episode title is at this rate, you should be interested. And that is topical because today the episode is being recorded on Wednesday, July 13th. Unless you're living under a rock or have zero interest in real estate whatsoever, you've probably heard at this point that the Bank of Canada raised interest rates by a full 1%. I feel like it's like even if you're living under a rock, like all I hear everyone talking about now is like it went from everybody talking about real estate. Now it's like inflation and interest rates. It could just be a selection bias because like that's all I talk about as well. I feel like this is like pop culture at this point. I totally agree. You know, it's funny. I scroll through Instagram or other socials and maybe it's just because I follow way too many real estate related people, but everyone's posting about this or they're in Mykonos. And I'm kind of jealous of the Mykonos people because they don't have to deal with all the craziness going on back here. Yeah. You might as well be there too with USD and Euro trading at parity right now. I mean, honestly. And TIFF came in pretty good for us today to protect the Canadian dollar against the US dollar, I think, right? So That's Tiffany, Richard Tiffany Macklem you're talking about, right? Yeah, my boy Tiff. <laughs> so let's talk about Tiff for a second. Can't wait for breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. So I went back, yes, last night and pulled this. And for anyone that's listening, full disclosure, I was up till midnight last night doing a whole bunch of research for this podcast fully preparing for a 0.75 or 75 bips rate hike. Man, was I wrong. I almost wrote one for 50 and one for 75. Did not even think to write one for a 1%. So we had to make some last minute updates to the the script this morning. Yeah, you should have called me, man. I was thinking, I mean, if you looked at the probability pricing last night, late last night, they were pricing in 50 to 75. And it started as a 90% probability of, sorry, 50 to 75. And then it switched to a 90% probability of 75 to 100. And I think like, you know, it was, I I honestly don't think they had their number until US inflation numbers printed at 9am this morning. And I think they called it then, right? And the reality is US inflation numbers came in at 9.1%, right? That's high. A lot of people were talking prior to that as if inflation might be rolling over when we saw that 8.6, 8.8% CPI. And clearly that's not happening, right? And so basically what the Bank of Canada, I think, is doing is trying to front run that next rate hike that we're going to see out of the Federal Reserve on July 27th, I believe it is. Because you know we've backed ourselves into a corner. We either have a currency crisis where the Canadian dollar starts suffering 
trading against the US dollar, which is remarkably strong right now, you know, talking about the US dollar hitting parity with the euro, incredible. And what, what would happen is that would continue to be a, a negative feedback loop on inflation, right? We'll start having imported inflation. So they're trying to hedge against that, I think, right? Because if, if Canadian dollar drops below where it is now, then your settlement currency of buying goods outside of Canada for Canadian businesses gets more expensive. And so inflation won't really get capped. And I think the big sentiment here is that we're really not going to see this get under control until inflation is less than the interest rate, until we're at net negative interest rates, right? And we're still at net positive interest rates. There's a big gap there, right? You can borrow out, you're borrowing at negative 4% right now, right? Like even at, at rates that seem high based on what we were seeing last year. And it's going to take a long time to get there. Either inflation has to come down a lot or rates have to come up a lot. And it doesn't seem like either are budging. Can we get a quick explanation of what you mean when you say net negative interest rates? Yeah. So net negative interest rate is basically the rate of inflation minus the interest rate. If that number is, if that's a positive integer, then if you borrow money today at 5%, but inflation's 8%, or even in Canada, if it's understated CPI, which we all know is, you know, shuffled around, let's say, to be convenient for those who, who, who need it to be protected, let's say. I don't want to get too crazy here for the TikTok people. But if you're borrowing at 5% and your goods, any goods in the market are appreciating at 6%, then that's a net negative 1%. You're borrowing at less than the cost of inflation. So you just take that money and as long as it's put into any... You could go buy an Apple computer, hypothetically, right? Or whatever. And inflation will create a return on that good, right? So it's net negative. You're borrowing at less than the rate of inflation. Okay, that's a great explanation, and obviously, clearly illustrates the uh, the delta between where we are and where we need to get to. So, this is what this episode is going to entail. We're going to go through how we got to where we are. We're going to obviously touch on the rate hike and what that means, and and where some numbers are sitting. We'll probably talk about the Fed for a hot second, and then really what this means for investors and the different types of lending. And then I, I think if we have time, Dan has got a pretty cool deal that we were talking about that I think would be a very relevant and topical and, and a very value add thing for, for our listeners to hear. Hopefully just gives like some, some practicality to the way that we think about interest rates and we encourage people to invest, right? Like I want to really resonate that, you know, if you came here from the Canadian Investor Podcast, they talk a lot about value investing, right? I envision real estate the same way, right? Value investing, buying the right deals at a good price. And we're entering a market where that matters now. Anyway, I'll let you go. So I just wanted to start things off with kind of how we got here and I think why we got here. And a lot of that was going back to our buddy... Tiffany, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Tiff Macklem, who is a pretty sharp guy, former dean of the Robin School of Management, senior deputy of the Bank of Canada, and now the senior economist and governor of the Bank of Canada. Back in 2020, July 15th specifically, he said rates will be low for a long time. He encouraged Canadians to get out there and invest, projecting that rates probably wouldn't go up until 2023. Okay. Then in April of this year, a news article Tiff Macklin acknowledges misjudging inflation, pledges to act forcefully to bring it back down. Quote, unquote, we got a lot of things right. We got some things wrong and we're adjusting. Now, I want to see the list of things they got right. I really do. Yes. <laughs> by that point, rates had gone up. So by that point where he's ad admitting miscalculation, rates had gone up. And that was in April, April 28th. By that point, rates had gone up by 0 0.25 in March by 0 0.5 in April and another 0 0.5 in June. Now, when I say 0 0.5, that's that's the equivalent of 0.5% or known in the industry 50 BIPs, BPS. 
Just recently on July 9th, our buddy Tiff was not present for this, but Senior Deputy Governor Carolyn Rogers, in an interview with Reuters, said that the bank's main focus was to curb inflation, which is running at a 31-year high at 6.8%, obviously higher at this point, and they will act, quote-unquote, more forcefully if needed. Well, we're certainly seeing that now. This was just about a month ago, and and she really drives home the point and kind of finishes the interview by saying, of course, we're looking at the effect this has on housing. At the end of the day, the really important thing to remember is our target is inflation. That's our primary focus, and that is what is driving our decision. So essentially, housing is just a unfortunate byproduct that is suffering just like, you know, HELOCs, car loans, credit card loans, student loans. And a number of other things that we're seeing that that is the direct cause of inflation. So that's the history of the Bank of Canada. Obviously, you know, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. I feel like I feel like we got lied to, led on. I don't know what happened. You know, at least they're admitting they made some mistakes. But man, to go from saying, you know, spend, buy, lever up two years ago to you know, seeing yeah. 2.25 in rate hikes within, you know, six months, eh, a little bit of a disconnect there. Yeah. And I think prior to today's statement from the Bank of Canada, they were very silent, very, very quiet about what they were planning. And I think that, you know, the PR team and TIFF acknowledged that that statement that you're describing was a mistake, right? They shouldn't be providing forward economic guidance. They shouldn't be providing any economic guidance, right? What they should be doing is making statements like the one they made today, which is reiterating that their mandate is to control inflation, reiterating what they're doing about that, and providing some insight and data that only they have that alludes to whether or not their efforts are positive or negative and what other metrics that they're seeing in the market through their primary research that we don't have access to that are indicating positive or negative outlook for the Canadian economy. We didn't get that from them for two years, right? So, and heading into today's rate hike announcement, the silence was deafening, right? We knew that something was brewing. And I don't think they really had an understanding of what their policy was going to be. I think that they were waiting for that inflation print coming out of the US. I think if, if inflation had rolled over in the States, we might have seen a 50 or 75 hike, right? But now that it hasn't, we know the reality here is that the Fed is driving the ship, right? We have to follow the Fed closely. Otherwise, we risk running into a currency crisis and getting into that feedback loop where we start importing inflation costs. And then inflation is even further out of control than it already is in Canada. So I won't beat the dead horse of the macro side of things because I'm not really especially qualified to talk about that, although I don't think anybody is. I mean, it's all animal spirits and invisible hands. But from my perspective, that's that's sort of how those moves went. So, you know, Canadians should be paying close attention to what's happening stateside on the inflation side and on the interest rate side because they have a global reserve currency to protect, right? And as, as soon as you can establish your market thesis on what's going to happen in the states, that'll sort of dictate whether or not or how quickly we're going to start to see rates change, you know, start coming back down in Canada because my perspective is on price and I don't I don't encourage anybody to invest in real estate for capital appreciation. But my perspective on price is that we're not going to see prices, real estate prices, asset prices start increasing again until we start seeing interest rates start decreasing again. And we're not going to see interest rates start decreasing again until we start to see inflation decreasing. And it'll probably take two or three quarters to lag. Maybe they overshot it, right? We don't know. We won't know until next year. But the reality is there are other components outside of monetary policy that contribute to inflation, 
supply chain erosion, globalization, war, et cetera, that we can't control for, that we don't really, those are variables that that we don't know what's going to happen there. I think we need to do a deeper dive. I want to circle back and, and capture some of that when we get to what this means for the investor and kind of the final segment. But before we do that, let's just quickly talk about the rate hike here. Now we're going, I don't think it's worth going into a ton of detail about the you know, the actual hike, again, go on Instagram, go on TikTok, read, pick up a newspaper, whatever your form of ingesting information is, this will literally be everywhere because this is somewhat unprecedented. It's the largest rate hike since 98. You know, the last time Canadians saw a prime rate over 4% was back in 2008. We're now almost at 5% at 4.7. You know, this is going to affect the stress test. This is also, I just want to touch on this. So, you know, the majority of Canadians up until, let's say, mid last year, the five-year fixed rate was the most popular product, right? By by a long shot. Now, over the past, you know, let's say the last six months of the last year, popularity in variable mortgages was on a huge rise, rising by 19%. And that's from 34% in the first half of last year to 53% in the second. So huge upswing in the variable rates. Well, obviously, I mean, if you're looking at a variable rate, you know, I, as a mortgage agent, I got clients variable rates at like 1.3%. I mean, you cannot argue with that, right? I mean, you're getting stress tested at like, you know, 3.3%, which is nothing, right? So, you know, the variable rate holders are now going to start to see all of their costs go up. Well, it's going to change the way that underwriting works, right? Like a lot of people are using the variable side to, and I'm sorry, I probably threw you off with the screen share there, but yeah, yeah, you got me a bit. I mean, I want to get these videos out just for our listeners who are potentially interested in, in seeing the data that we're looking at. You know, I, I see Simone and, and Braden often, you know, Simone will be looking things up while they're in the middle of their podcast to try and reference a stat or whatever. I mean, accuracy is important, right? So I pulled up the CMHC report for residential market report or residential lending report that happened last year. And we saw variable rates accelerate more and more towards end of 2020 and beginning of 2021 throughout 2021 and into early 2022. And the reason was because price acceleration was pushing more and more buyers into variable rates because they had to get they had to qualify at the lowest rate that they possibly could, right? And the variable rate was extremely compelling. Now we're at a point where, you know, the risk is being realized on the variable side very quickly, right? And we're actually, from my perspective, and we talked about this in a, in a previous episode, but we're actually, from my perspective, approaching, in a lot of cases, from some of these cheaper variable rates, we're approaching what could be hitting the trigger rate, right? Where these borrowers are now spending more money on interest than their whole entire mortgage payment. And I think if you go from like a 1.5, like if you went from like a 1.5 variable to, so 1.5% interest rate to a 6%, which won't like, isn't, hasn't happened yet, but it could very well in the next, if you know, if this, if this hiking schedule continues, then you'd be, you know, you'd be losing $500 of equity per month on the average Canadian house. And that means that basically the bank's going to call you and say, hey, you got to change your mortgage structure because you're losing equity. We can't pay. We're not paying you to own this house. And, and so variable, you know, we got to the point where heading into this thing, variable was at something like 50% of new originations and 30% of the total market, give or take, right? To me, that's a lot of risk when you've got aggressive rate hiking coming into the market. So the question becomes, how does this impact the marginal buyer? and the marginal seller or the marginal owner. I don't think a lot of investors have, like in the in the US, and Stephen Pomwasi from Better Dwelling posted a really good thread on this. In the US in 08, right? 
the market was front run. The price reductions was front run by investors selling, reducing prices quickly, right? They could reduce prices quicker than the lenders could. And they're sophisticated, right? They're traders in a lot of cases. So if they see the prices coming down, if they see the threat in the market, they can drop their prices before because a lender still has to go get the property from the borrower who's on the property has to be in arrears first and foremost, right? So a minimum one month needs to go by for you to realize that the property's in arrears, right? Then you got to take them to court to either do foreclosure or power of sale. Then you got to put the property on the market. By the time you've done that, you like there's a slot, a one quarter slot almost where there, there's different like reporting data. There's different trends that are happening in the market. You're in a different interest rate environment, right? So investors were the ones that you wanted to watch. And, and Stephen mentions this as an important thing. I don't see that happening in the Canadian market yet, actually. From my perspective, I think that there's like this really interesting thing happening. And if you read the big short, watch the big short, whatever, you see a lot of that idea of people levering up their existing assets and speculating into housing, right? You're seeing that a lot in Canada. And there is risk with that. But your long-term investors, the people who own multiple pins, right, big portfolios, et cetera, they're actually just, just starting to think about getting back into the market. So that's the interesting sentiment check from my perspective of what's happening in real estate right now. And the important metrics to watch, what are investors doing, right? Because to me, they're the price floor. They're the last buyer to say, yeah, prices are low enough. We're going to we're gonna get back in the market right now. And, th- and they'll be the ones who kind of could, could lead a recovery in house prices. By comparison to your marginal buyer who's, you know, levered right up, right? They HELOC their house up to 80%. Remember, he- or I guess you, can't, you can only HELOC up to 65, but they HELOC their house right up, right? And they're borrowing now on what's now a variable rate on the HELOC. And they're levering that money into an 80% loan to value investment property, maybe, or something like that, or a cottage or their Airbnb or whatever. Economic contraction comes, right? Interest rates cause the economy to contract. What are they doing with their assets, right? Those are the individuals that I'm watching closely to get an understanding for whether or not we have enough strength in the market to weather the shock of a 100 basis point interest rate hike. But anyway, I digress. I know you, you, were, you were on a tear there before I interrupted you with this screen share, so... All right. That's long gone. I just wanted to provide a quick definition of arrears there because I'm in the mortgage space and I had no idea what it meant until I looked up the definition a while ago because it's not something you hear often, but that's a missed payment for three or more months. So that can be pretty scary. Now, we have seen a little bit of a rise in those recently, not enough to be very concerned, but that article that I was reading that reported that came out a few weeks ago. Yeah, I do have that stat here too, again, from the last CMHC report. So charter banks are like less than 20 basis points in arrears. So delinquent for 90 or more days. I mean, here, actually, maybe I'll just screen share this too in case. And we're going to release these videos for anybody who wants to look at them. But there's a chart. If you just search, uh, I think it was CMHC residential mortgage report, mortgage investment funds like your MIFs, MIX, etc. They're running close to 1% delinquent, which is like what they run at anyway. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're they're a higher risk credit product. So I don't think delinquencies are really necessarily the indicator. And there's a downtrend on all of these, right? I don't think that mortgage arrears are going to be the indicator yet, right? Like that to me, these are long-term economic indicators. We'll see. We're going to see a lot of those printing negative in the next two years, right? But I think, you know, this is a cyclical event. This is a long-term cyclical event. Yep. And we're just caught in the middle of it. And for a lot of us, it's I think it's catching us so off guard. And I've, I've talked, you know, I spent the morning on the phone with a lot of shocked investors and, and other mortgage agents. And and in investors, you know, I'm 32 this year, 33 this year, sorry. And, you know, there's people 10, 15 years older than me. They're telling me they're like, yeah, you know, I've never seen a bear market. So right. I think this is a, it's a large portion of the population that's become very active 
within the investing community that is now experiencing something for the first time. So anyways, without getting too off topic, I want to keep this going. I want to talk a little bit about lenders, different types of lenders. I've got kind of a funny, interesting story as to how strict the A's are getting. I want to quickly touch on some of the other types of lenders. And then I want to get in, really do, you know, finish out the episode strong with what are these rate hikes doing for investors? What opportunities are they presenting, which I think is a major takeaway. So let's just dive in. You know, I think everyone's familiar with the A lenders of the big banks. They are getting more and more competitive. So they're tightening things up. A little story on a file that closed two days ago. We almost lost it. It was literally three or four hours before it was supposed to close. I had the agent asking me if, if you know they need an extension. That was no problem. I was going back and forth with the lender, and the lender had emailed us a website of the client that we were trying to get funded, saying your client still works in Toronto, and you know they're purchasing a place up in Ottawa, just outside Ottawa. They're a great young couple. Everything checks out. Pretty standard deal. But for some reason, this underwriter felt the need to go all, you know, FBI, literally go and do like a deep dive on the internet, found this. And the, the funniest thing was this deal almost fell apart because the the bio that the underwriter had found, and underwriter is just someone that underwrites a deal. So they go back and do all the numbers and make sure from the lender's perspective that, you know, the numbers all work Yeah, they're out. not forensic accountants. By far, they're not. For, and no, no disrespect, I love my underwriters out there. You guys do an incredible job. But- this one literally, we that we almost lost a deal. These people almost lost a house three hours before it was supposed to close because the underwriter went on and found a bio, a three-year-old bio from when this couple used to live in Toronto. And in the third paragraph in this in this person's bio, there was something that I see patients in Midtown Toronto sometimes. And that that one line almost almost made the deal fall apart. So of course I I found this stressful but also funny i went and spoke to several other uh, colleagues within the industry and and apparently that's the case is is we're seeing a lenders you know going hard really going hard to check every single detail i'm getting you know not only has business slowed drastically but you know the business that is being put through is really being put under magnifying glass so what does that tell you like read between the lines like qualitatively like to me that's alarming right that there's there's something ha- coming from the top like of the the chain of command that's saying look there's risk here and we need to start being aware of it because if you're an underwriter like you don't just arbitrarily decide to start scrutinizing more on random files right like there's no reason that an, an underwriter who in February of this month when there was actually real risk right like now risk has actually been realized between February and and present day, right? You're an underwriter and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start Googling all of these borrowers right now, right? And scrutinizing a little bit on their employment situation. Like that doesn't just happen randomly, right? And so, you know, especially seeing something like that happening at the, in the chartered bank side, right? On the big six side, I think we're, we're starting to see more and more risk realized and, and we haven't seen spreads, bank spreads start changing and pricing that in yet. So we're kind of in one of those weird positions where everybody's still trying to figure out what's going on, right? And pricing is the same thing. Like if you're a buyer or a seller on the real estate thing, you don't know whether or not a a listing is underpriced or if you're selling, whether or not you should be underpricing it. Like we're still in this price discovery thing where people don't have good economic guidance from anyone. And and the Bank of Canada being a good example, you know, we talk, talk about going all the way to the, the top of the chain of command, right? They're either dead silent or they're saying things that they ought not to be saying, right? It's a really strange situation. And and to me, the biggest thing, like what it means for, for real estate investors is 
if you could create your own worldview and, and operate independently of all of those things, right? Say, okay, I've got an investment thesis, but to me, it doesn't really matter what the Bank of Canada decides. It doesn't matter how much the chartered bank starts scrutinizing my underwriting, right? If you can operate independent of those inputs and find investments that are, are compelling regardless of the situation economically, interest-wise, et cetera, that's a long process. The, and the reality is we've we gotten away from that over the past several years, right? Since COVID started, because you'd spend less time looking at a house or a real estate investment than you would at a pair of shoes, right? You would no inspection, right. no financing clause, and, just and showing, sight unseen. Let's go. Yeah, and a lot of real estate boards were regulating shorter showing periods because of COVID, right? So and you can only have two people through. So you can't have your dad, the home inspector, come through your real estate investment and make sure <laughs> that right. And so we got to this point where people weren't making good decisions. And that to me is the real collateral damage of an overheated real estate market, right? It's the individualized pain. Yeah, I mean, systemically, I don't. I honestly don't think there's a, a high degree of systemic risk in Canada. And if there is, it's on the development side, really. I, I feel that way. Like when you talk about people buying tons of condos with the intention of flipping them and ha- not even having the means to close them, those are the risks in the in the systemically in the Canadian real estate market. To be honest with you, but when you talk about individuals overpaying by a hundred grand because their realtor told them they're never going to get a place if they don't overbid it or whatever it is, right? There's so many of these like individual situations. Seeing those go away, like the market is healing right now. You know, when COVID was like starting, this whole thing was like nature is healing. That's what's happening right now. And it it brings me back to that idea of like the cyclicality of the, the market, right? You can look at a lot of Dalio's research, how the economic machine works on YouTube would be a great place to start. If you can just Google that, you want you got a half hour to spare. Watch that video. It'll give you a really good understanding. Real estate is a credit-based product, right? People just borrowed a bunch of money for the past two years. And we saw the same thing happen 2016, 2017. What happens when you borrow money, you got to pay it back. The economy contracts as people are start putting more and more dollars into servicing that debt that they just accrued for the last two years, right? If the cost of that capital is going up, it now takes longer to service that debt. And it also takes more economy. It takes more job. It takes more earnings to service the debt that was accrued over the last little while. So this is where we have to examine, did we just supersize what that credit cycle is going to look like in the Canadian economy? My answer to that question would be yes, but I don't know, right? So, but that's how I'm operating. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that that wonderful 30-minute explanation of cycles by our buddy Ray that can be found on YouTube is, is a wonderful place to start. To be honest, it actually put things into a lot of perspective and it really kind of makes you feel better about it that, you know, this is a time and a place and this we'll move on from here, right? Man, it's as ingrained in our nature as like, you know, I mean, we're still animals, right? Like, you you know, most like Smithian economics talks about animal spirits, right? Like that's this is the one thing you can't control for in the in the market, right? We're still we're still animalistic at the end of the day, right? And the invisible hand, the idea that there's this one thing that sways the market in either direction, that's just an aggregation of, and that's how consumer sentiment starts to materialize, right? And like it's going to happen, in, it's going to ebb and flow like most other things in nature, right? It's just an aggregation with this medium of exchange attached to it. You know what's funny is that Canadians every summer we're surprised, every spring we're shocked, every winter is a right. new winter that sucks and and guess what? Those are seasonal cycles, you know. We've all lived through those for however long you've been alive, but but obviously, you know, economic and, and real estate cycles take a bit longer. So, I just want to I've made a few points here that I kind of want to go through that my business partner Jonathan Gibson and Daniel Gibson of of G&H Mortgage Group we just put these together. Johnny is super sharp. He does a ton of, uh, we do a ton of private stuff, all different types of lending, A, B, C, D, you name it. There's actually no C and Ds. 
but we'll do a whole thing on on lenders and the different types of money because if you're an investor you know you can get a couple i think you can get up to five sometimes six loans from a from a big a lender but those quickly dry up Dan, you know, all your stuff's with B or, or privates. Yeah, I mean, I do have one, even my A side is like a semi-chartered bank, right? So so I want to get through these because I do want to have that little explanation of your of, your, of that deal, which I think is really cool and really relevant. So one, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of people questioning why they paid, you know, let's just say the horrible example here is, you know, the $1.2 million for a duplex in Oshawa that didn't cash flow at the peak Right, you bought in January at the peak, and you know your stuff barely cash flowed back then. You're on a variable rate. You're going to be in trouble, and I think there's people that it really goes back to that. You've got to be buying right, right. So I think there's going to be a lot of deals coming up. If you can afford to buy at these higher rates, buy it because rates are only going up to go back down. And if you can find a cash flowing deal at a three, four, five, six percent rate. Guess what happens when rates go back down? You know, your cash flow goes back up, your cap rate goes back up, which leads me to my next point. Rents are historically strong on the residential side, like really, really strong, which means cap rates are going up. That's great. You know, not a lot of people can afford to buy right now. So that makes it a great opportunity. If you buy bad when the market is at the top, you bought really bad. If you can buy bad when the market is bad, it matters a lot less. In the sense, I'm way less scared right now than I was in January. A couple quick points, you know, the gap between A lenders and B lenders is shrinking. You know, from my, in my business, anytime I say B lender to the average, let's say first time home buyer, it's an immediate, well, I don't want to go B, I'm I'm better than that, you know, which is funny because these are actually, yeah, it is a stigma. And it's so funny because just because it's the second letter of the alphabet. It's so funny though, right? Canadians have this like perspective. It's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen, right? It, it's like, there's this hierarchy of like things that you can do that are bad in the real estate world. And it's like <laughs> renting is like the bottom, right? And then- You peasant, how could you? Borrowing from a B lender. And then, oh, then it's God, borrowing don't. from an A lender. Right, it's like it's the weirdest thing that we've stigmatized our housing market this way, right? But anyway, I'll let you continue. Yeah, and I mean it's just funny because you know the, as the A's get stricter, as I said, you know I almost lost a, a deal because someone checked an, an outdated bio, right? Like I mean the underwriting process is is getting questionable at some of these at some of these big banks and a lot more strict. Whereas whereas B's actually you know a lot of high net worth self-employed, very successful people that maybe have a lot of money in a corporation or a lot of money in a business that maybe don't claim that much. They have great success with bees. Bees are a lot easier to work with for, for some, for some people. I was wrong with this. I thought there would be a contraction in private capital, but I spoke to some, some private capital guys this morning and no, apparently there's a ton of private capital in the market right now looking to be deployed. So, there you go, investors. If you can find a deal, you can definitely find funding now. And I think now is more important ever to find a deal and to really run those numbers and use higher numbers than you usually would, right? Run it at 8, 12. I once was on a call with a guy who says he runs everything at 13%. Right? You're never going to screw up at 13%, especially even if you're getting a private at 8, right? Yeah. The way I look at it is like, look, if, if rates hit, I'll stress test my models up to a 50% increase in interest rates, right? So my base case is, you know, I mean, like I'm talking about a lot of the, the deals that I'm in and talking about why the market is especially compelling to investors today. 
you know, like I would model something at 5%, let's say, and I would model it down to 3% and up to 7% or even higher than that, right? 7.5%, 50% increase in interest rates. The reality is if, if rates go to 7, 7.5%, my mortgage is going to be the least of my worries, right? The, the economy around us would be burning to the ground, right? Like I'm going to be <laughs> seriously like- Don't panic, guys. It's okay. Yeah, but, but everything's going to be okay. Like, my concerns are going to be like helping my fellow Canadians- with their food, not what my rental yield is at that point, right? So if it, if it services, whatever, like that's great. Talking about the compellingness, like I'm all about relativity, right? Like when you talk about value investing, Warren Buffett talks about this a lot. Am I getting something at a good deal, right? Like is it a fair price? Am I paying a fair price for something? And to me, we don't like a lot of investors don't compartmentalize costs, right? Input This is an input and output business. And you have to think about real estate as a business. It's not a passive income investment because it's not, right? You're starting a business. You're starting a business of being a landlord, when you do that, you have some input costs. Those are paying your mortgage. The mortgage is comprised of two parts, one of which is the price, the, the principal payment. The other is the interest, which is the interest payment, right? Those are both costs. So if you bought in February and your property's gone down $100,000, but you bought at 1.5% rate, you probably netted out better than somebody buying at $500,000 at a 4% rate today because their interest cost is going to be hundred over hundred grand in that five-year term, right? And or it could be depending on the price. So you got to really know and do the math on what the inputs and outputs are, right? For me, like price matters, but it doesn't, it's not the only thing, right? There are many other components. And what are the outputs? The outputs are rent, right? So you put in principal and interest and taxes, maintenance, insurance, et cetera, all of your input costs, and you put out rent. Okay. So if rents are climbing, that's another thing. So that's an, that's a, a, a revenue line item that you need to be thinking about. And if rents are up 10, 20, 30% in that market, or I'm buying a vacant duplex, so I know I'm putting them in at, at market, then now all of a sudden, my revenue is far better than it was if I was buying the same duplex this time last year at a higher rate and running the margins super tight, right? So you really got to examine every single piece of the puzzle. And that's why modeling stuff out in Excel makes sense, because you can also game every variable and see how vulnerable you are to each individual element. So, you know, contextualizing that, because you wanted to talk a little bit about my deal, like I blended out my interest over my entire portfolio. Like I just cal- I ran some calculations dollar for dollar. And there's a handful of different facilities from a handful of different lenders, right? I've got everything from a wannabe A lender, semi-chartered bank, which I'm sure you can guess, to a very hyper-localized credit union, right? And I've got, I've got some like some B-side, some monoline in there. And, you know, I'm at like a high fours, Right. So for me, right, I've always been borrowing at the rates that because I'm I'm like not afraid to say I borrow on the B side, right? I'm also not afraid to say I rent my principal residence. And I don't and I think that destigmatizing those things for Canadians is important to get good real estate investment decisions, to have a healthy relationship with housing as Canadians, right? But so for me, now all of a sudden I've been built portfolio building at four and a half, five percent interest rates for the past several years. I've got rental wash, right? I can qualify now at and I can use all my rental income for qualifying. And I'm borrowing at the same rates I always was because I, I spent time and energy building my business and building my portfolio. And now I've got good income. So the income isn't my problem on, on the qualification side. I'm still going to be sticking with those, those lenders anyway. I'm renewing with, that, with all of them. I'm just checking the renewal box. They're a lot more lenient on, on your bureau too, like not looking at your credit, but they tend to, I don't know how I could say this one diplomatically, but like they, they have a lower likelihood of showing up as aggressively on your bureau, right? And privates are like that too, right? Like a lot of these guys aren't registering these things against your bureau. Not that you should go and be 
deliberately trying to circumvent the credit bureau system and, and levering up past your, your ratios, your, your TDS and GDS ratios. But you know, th- there's a leniency there. These lenders look at the business case of you, not what the not you know not the owner occupier case of you, not the what's your job sensitivity. There is this person, are they running a good business? Are they a good business? And are they a good customer that I want to build a long term relationship with? Because that's the other thing on the non bank financial institution side, credit unions, especially credit unions, they love relationship building. If they can get you as a customer for life. They will, and they'll and they'll they'll sharpen their pencils on pricing. They'll sharpen their pencils on terms. They'll do a lot. They'll pull out a lot of stops to try and get you, especially to bring over your whole portfolio. So use this as an opportunity to start like acting as your own mortgage broker or calling Nick and getting him to introduce you to good lenders. Honestly, like start having lunches, start playing golf, right? Like start getting to know the people who are lending you money because they're going to determine how successful you can be in this real estate downturn. Playing golf and talking about real estate are like two of my favorite things. So if anyone wants to get out and do that, I'm all for it. And Daniel, I mean, you bring up some great points. I think that a lot of the, you know, the, I don't even want to say alternative lenders because that's also a type of lending, but let's say the outside of A lenders. I mean, you've got B lenders, you've got monoline lenders, credit unions, small banks, private lending. There's a ton of options to explore that especially investors, like people listening to this podcast need to explore whether or not you're using them. You know, I like to think it's usually nice to be able to get your first duplex or whatever it is, your first few properties. If you can get them with an A, sure, do it. That's a great start. If you can't and you're self-employed or you, you know, you've got a big down payment, but you don't show a lot of money, there is a lot of other options out there, right? Don't just go to one bank and be like, wow, you know, big bank X won't, won't let me do it. I got kind of two more closing points and then I want to see if you got anything else to say. And then, and then I think, you know, we've brought up so many topics the triggering rate, which is the trigger rate, but it is triggering. The stress test, another thing that, you know, we will continue to unpack these in further episodes and, and probably do deeper dives, provide some explanations. But these are things I'd urge people to go look up. And if you've got a mortgage right now that you're worried that, you know, is it, changing, if you've got a variable rate mortgage, you need to go and run some numbers or, or reach out to your bank, your mortgage broker, or myself, whatever. So three to six months, in my opinion, is going to be a pretty good time to buy. That's when I think there will be kind of a lot of... Yeah, I think it's going to be longer than that, honestly. But I, I don't get in the business of forecasting. You're very bold. No, I you know what? I just I thought I'd throw that out there. I mean, that's I'm going to be trying to purchase something at that point in, in one of my favorite spots where I already own several properties, and we'll do an episode about that. And then I just wanted to throw out one little stat that's probably going to help some people understand what this is going to do. So this 1% hike is approximately $275 on a $500,000 mortgage with a 25-year AM. So that's about your most popular product right there. And that's what probably most people, you know, in and around the 500,000, I can't remember what the average mortgage is in Canada. I believe it's somewhere around that might even be a bit more, but expect to be paying a couple hundred more dollars. It's going to be tough. I think that's it for me. I got a whole bunch of other notes, but we've jumped around. Anything else you want to say before we kind of wrap things up here, Dan? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think the other thing you wanted to hear me mention was that the play, I'm closing on a pre-construction. I'm not sure when. I think I just got my final date later this year, like September, October. I'm closing. I'm going to close it. I think right now the best business case seems to be to close this with like a 7% private. And the reason is because I can get a above, I can get a, 
over loan to cost mortgage. So there's a couple of different ways you could approach this situation. So there are a lenders where you can close with a variable and this is a, uh, like this is allowed, right? But you'd close with an open variable, like one year open variable because a lenders will typically only lend at loan to cost, right? But to me, it comes back to that net, thinking about that net interest rate, right? I think even at a seven, like what I feel on my personal balance sheet when I think about inflation is that it's higher than 7%. So if I'm buying, borrowing at 7% and I can go get a yield that's better than that on the extra 150K that I'm going to get over purchase price, keeping in mind like purchase price on this thing, this is a seven or eight year old pre-construction. Purchase price is like 400K, right? House is worth probably over a million bucks right now. So if I can borrow at 65% loan to value, I'm still getting 150,000 over the purchase price. And I'm still at 65% loan to value, right? But no A lender is going to lend immediately at over loan to purchase price. So, and to me, that 150K, if I can get that sooner rather than later and put it to work into good deals, because I, I do feel that the market's compelling. I'm not bullish yet, but I, I think that you know, the good deals are going to start, start arriving shortly. That to me makes, is the best business case, even though it's, and it's really only 2% above what I'd be getting a fixed on right now anyway, really, right? And I might even do it like, you know, on a private, again, it comes down to flexibility. You can sit down with your lender and hash out a deal with them. So I might even go interest only, right? To get it cash flowing for the first year, right? And that this deal will make sense on those numbers. So anyway, that I just wanted to, to inject that little piece of insight there because I think about interest rate sensitivity differently than like most people think have to go A, have to buy at the best price. And or they're like, I have to go A. A lot of people were rushing into the market in February or March because they were like, I have, to, I have to buy with this 2% rate right away, not realizing that that 2% rate hike would have lasted them until April or May and they could have bought the same asset for 20% less, right? Because that's literally how much prices came down off of. So you got to think about all of the different inputs, right? What are all of the inputs in running your real estate portfolio business, right? Cost of capital, paying your principal, right? Paying all of your expenses, buy assets well that don't have huge input costs, and have high output values, right? Or you or have variable output values that you can increase, right? Increase rents, add units, increase the the development yield, etc. That's all I got to say today. Whew. Wow. Okay, lots to take in. I think a few key takeaways are be prepared to pay more for your variable for your HELOC. You know, the main thing is buy right. Run the numbers, buy right. You know, don't put too much faith into economists and, and central bankers because they're just people and you know obviously they make mistakes but we'll take that up at breakfast at tiffany's yeah and my like succinct advice on buy right is look at where the marginal buyer the people who are most exposed on credit are that's where the deals are going to show up first right people who are have to exit the market because they can no longer afford so basically like your 500 to a million price range all your cmhc borrowers they just got blown out they're gone there's going to be some good shopping opportunities in that market yeah, I'm thinking again, later this year, early next year will be a pretty great time for some investors, but stay tuned. What do I know? In closing, just wanted to say thank you everyone so much for listening. This is our third episode. We record these in advance, obviously, and we've been working really hard. We're, we're kind of going to be doing a little campaign today. So by the time you're, you're listening to this, we've, we'll probably already done this, but any liking, sharing, rating of this is is greatly appreciated. Dan and I are, are here to provide value and, and give back to the real estate community that has given us both so much. So wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you and we'll see you in a couple of days. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in GNH Mortgage Group.
Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.